Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah's word to the exiles in Babylon, beginning in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 11. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, feel free to do so. Um, But if you do not, it's printed for you in the worship folder, and it's on the screen behind me. If you're on the other side of the building, it should be on your screen, or if you're at home watching, the same thing. Let's begin reading together in verse 4, and we'll read all the way through verse 13, excuse me, verse 13. Jeremiah is writing a letter, and here's what it said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for, they, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you all my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me, find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so we've been doing for a number of weeks now a series on part of our vision. There are three core principles to our vision. We want want to be a people who are fluent in the gospel and for the city. Because we believe that if we can become a people truly fluent in the gospel and truly positioned to be for the city, that we would be able, by God's grace, to ignite and then to cultivate a movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven and Polk County and hopefully the world. Now, as we talk about what it means to be for the city, Jeremiah 29, particularly verse 7, is a crucial text. We want to be a city-loving church, a church with a city-loving model for ministry. So we're having a family meeting this morning. If you're new, this will give you some insight into our church. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is this is Christians kind of having a family family meeting about why we're here and what we're trying to do and what we believe God's called us to. In 2007, so just before we planted Redeemer in 2008, Jonathan and I were walking around downtown. Uh, I have a picture and I meant to give it to Joe, but you really you really should get online and try to find a picture of the downtown area of Winter Haven in the year 2005 compared to the year 2023. You wouldn't believe it. Downtown in 2005 looked like downtown in 1973. I'm not kidding. So much changed. So we were down there walking around. We were looking through the Ritz Theater windows, and the woman who was at the time um, the executive director of Main Street Winter Haven, which really was the forerunner of 610, which many of you are familiar with, um, she came out from her office there because we were actually like looking right into her office, I think, and she was wondering, what are these yahoos doing? And she comes out to meet us, and we told her, well, ma'am, we're planting a church, and uh, we were thinking about meeting sometime in that, somewhere in the downtown area of the city, and, uh, and we couldn't even get the words out before she very straightforwardly interrupted us and said, 
yeah, I don't like that idea at all. I'm not for that idea. And she kindly began to tell us, I won't give you the details, but about, she was telling us about all the great locations where we could meet far away from the downtown area of the city. So we asked her some questions and it became very clear that she had experienced churches to be a hindrance and not a help to her goals. She was working for the financial and cultural and civic flourishing of our city and she could not conceive of how a church might contribute to that. She had only experienced churches to be very antagonistic to the things that she was trying to do. And that was the moment. That was the moment when we knew that we had to be intentionally explicitly city-loving as a church. And it was something that we learned from Trinity, who is the church that planted us in Lakeland, who learned it from Redeemer, New York City, Kim Teller's, Kim, Tim Keller, Kim, Kim Teller, Kim Teller, otherwise known as Tim Keller. His memorial service was this past Tuesday. It's hard to overstate the impact that he has had on our leaders and our church in our attempts to be a city-loving, a church that loves the city. I grew up here, uh, graduated from Winter Haven High School in the 90s, and it was interesting, even then in 2008, as we would walk around and I would see people who graduated with me, the very first thing they would do is, almost, almost to the person, every time, I would see somebody, I hadn't seen them in 10 years or so, we would walk around, you know, we'd, we'd start talking, and they'd immediately begin to make some justification or explanation for why they still lived in Winter Haven as if just loving to live here wasn't a good enough reason to be here. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna make it my life mission to give people permission to love this place. Because God loves this place. What a great place to live. And then we planted a church and we wanted to be a city-loving church because we believed it's what the city needed. We've been reading Nehemiah in our, in our Bible reading program here in our church. Nehemiah was there in exile and he heard the report about Jerusalem, his city, the city of his father's graves, he said, and how the city had been broken, the wall had been broken down in the city and the city was in disrepair. And you remember what his response to that news was? It says there in Nehemiah 1 that he wept and then he fasted and then he prayed and then he began to put a plan into place to do something about it. But I wonder, and here's the question I would ask you this morning as we talk about what it means to be a city-loving church. Do you ever, do you ever weep over the brokenness of the city? Over the spiritual or even the physical, the condition of the people that live in this place? Does it ever just cause you to sit down and, and weep and ask God and beg God to do something about it and maybe use you in some way? Because that, I think, is a mirror image of not only Nehemiah's heart, but the one greater than Nehemiah, the weeping prophet, the man of sorrow himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what we want to see in this text. We really are told here, we're given very clear instructions what it would be to be a city-loving church, a city-loving people. And there's a context that we have to wrestle with, and then there's a command, and then ultimately there's God's commitment to this work and to us as we do the work. And so I want you to see that we really need wisdom first, and then we need a strategy, and then obviously we also need the power, the strength to do it, and all three of those things are found in Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles here. So let's walk through this text together. Again, verse 7 particularly, it's been very formative for our church, and that's why we're picking these things out, are the things that have been the, the verses and the passages that we've really tried to wrestle with and orbit around the most in the last 15 years. And so first, 
to properly understand God's instructions to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. You can't airlift these verses out of their context. You have to see the context, and that's the first thing. That gives you the wisdom. See, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. The prophet was in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And these words are part of a letter. If you go back to verse 1, you'll see that he wrote to the exiles in Babylon. Now, all of that is covered in verses 1 through 3, which we did not read just for the sake of time. But here's the story. The nation of Israel had suffered a civil war after King Solomon and divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so this is all of the material in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. The south was called Judah. The north was renamed, retained the name Israel. And the north quickly turned from the Lord and was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire destroyed the capital city of Samaria. Now, Judah in the south was more faithful. They had some good kings along the way, but eventually they too succumbed to the same pressures to break faith with God and to conform to the ways of the nations surrounding them. And about 140 years later, in 586 B.C., we know from history, they too were conquered. 150 years after the fall of Samaria, the Babylonians, who had surpassed the Assyrians as the world superpower by that time, they came against God's people, and Jerusalem fell. And the kings and the nobles and the leading citizens of the people were taken out of the land. They became exiles in a faraway place in Babylon under the harsh treatment of a foreign king. And Jeremiah was writing to those people in exile. They no longer existed in the form of a nation state with a government and laws and so forth. They were displaced immigrants, or the phrase that I'm going to use is they were resident aliens. You might see that as the, the subtitle of this particular part of the sermon. Now, why is all that important to us? Why go into all of that detail? Well, the New Testament uses the same language to describe our place in the world. In his letters, Peter refers to Christians as exiles. That's 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And the word would be best translated, as I've, as I've done here, resident aliens, citizens of one country and yet full-time residents of another, neither natives nor tourists, not rooted and at home, but not merely passing through. And what you have to understand is that exile was a political strategy to assimilate the conquered people into their own culture so that within a generation or two, this nation that had been conquered would lose its distinctive cultural and religious identity and just become a part of the empire. And that is obviously a temptation for us as well. And so the Bible warns of the danger of worldliness when it says things like, do not love the world, 1 John 2. Friendship with the world is enemy is enmity with God, James 4, 4. Do not be conformed to the world, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. The Israelites were aware of this strategy. And so when they got to Babylon, they settled intentionally on the outskirts of the capital. And it was an attempt to resist cultural assimilation, to live apart from the rest of Babylon by creating their own subculture where they could kind of maintain their, maintain their way of life and try to re remain as removed from the influences of the Babylonian empire as possible. Now, ironically... That was the very thing that got them in so much trouble to begin with. They failed to do that when they lived in their own land, but as they come to Babylon, maybe they've learned their lesson and they seem intent on doing it now. Now, Jeremiah, though, led by God's Spirit, anticipates their overreaction and the overcorrection, and he wrote to help them achieve the proper balance. So we see that there is an equal temptation. 
As we think about our lives, there's equal temptation to become too isolated and too withdrawn and too peripheral to society. Faithfulness is found in maintaining the center to be in the world, but not of the world. That's how Jesus put it. We are to be in the world, but at the same time, not of the world. And God called the Jewish exiles to accept and embrace the tension of the city for the sake of God's glory. And that's our calling as well. And it means a couple of things before we move to the next point. First, it means that we must intentionally live, work, and play in the city and avoid becoming too separated or withdrawn. Don't be a tourist. Be honest. If you're from Florida, you don't like tourists all that. Well, no state sales tax. So, I mean, you know. Yay for the tourists, right? Until you try to drive I-4 between here and Disney, and then you're like, tourists. And this text is saying, don't be a tourist. Look at verse 4 and verse 7. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Look at those words. Isn't that interesting language there? God says, don't act like a tourist. I've sent you to that place. We believe in sentness, not thrownness. We have been sent, not just thrown out into the world. And that means wherever you are, wherever you are, you've been sent there. God sent the Israelites to Babylon, and that should change their whole approach to the city. And whatever neighborhood you live in, guess what? You've been sent there. And whatever school your kids go to, doesn't matter really what the decision-making process was. You've been sent there. Whatever lunch table you sit at at school God has sent you to those friends. And if God has sent you, then he has some purpose for you there. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then he has put you into the world. In a specific place, among specific people, for a specific person, and for, I can't say that, specific purposes... God's grace and his love has come to you on its way to somebody else. And we do not have the right to disengage from that calling and to move out of the cultural centers that God has called us to out of fear. It is a betrayal of our sentness. And so Jeremiah wrote, look what he says in verse 5, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. He's saying, settle in, invest in the future, plant a tree and stick around to see it grow. Engage in the life of the city. Beautify things. You're not just passing through. Don't despise the wickedness of Babylon. Don't live with self-righteous superiority. Be a good neighbor. Pay your taxes. Go to city council meetings. Wendell Berry is a beloved author for many. He's written books that encourage uh, living small lives in a small town. Uh, And his most famous book is Jaber Crow. And in the book, the title character, Jaber makes his way back to the small town that he grew up in and he dreams of bigger things for himself but he ultimately finds himself becoming the town barber and for the next 35 years he just lives in the city as the town barber and that's the book that's the plot sounds lovely doesn't it who would want to read something like that thrilling i mean that's not a sci-fi epic adventure for you there well it is, I mean, you ought to read the book. It's really great. And, uh, and it tells just his kind of inner turmoil that for the first 35 years or so, for the first of those 35 years anyway, he's quite restless. Jaber, he's always thinking about moving to a bigger city with better prospects. Can't find a wife. He's frustrated, you know. But eventually something shifts in his heart and he begins to settle in. He decides to invest. And I love this little reflection. 
that, that he offers on, on, on what's changed in him. He says this, this is the way, his, his words, Jaber's words. He says, what decided me, he decides, you know what, I'm going to stay. I'm just, this is, I'm here. And he said, what decided me, I think, was I could no longer imagine a life for myself beyond Port William. I thought, I will have to share in the fate of this place. Whatever happens to Port William must happen to me. Now, I love those words. It's how I feel about my city. And it's exactly what Jeremiah said to the exiles in verse 7 when he said, Pray to the Lord, look there for the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I mean, we must, we must be moving toward the city, not away from it. Intentionally living and working and playing among the people God has called us to, to link our happiness and flourishing with the flourishing of the city, which is why we labor so hard in this church to not have you constantly coming here, but to have you going there. But at the same time, while we are intentionally living, working, and playing, we also must be respectfully resisting the city and avoiding becoming culturally, politically, and spiritually assimilated. Don't become, don't be a tourist, right? We don't like them very much. But don't be a native. Don't become a native. Don't just settle down and make a home. Here's what Jesus said in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. Sanctify them in the truth. So this is what Jeremiah is saying here. Jeremiah instructed the exiles to be fully involved in the life of the city, working and praying for it. But at the same time, they were not to adopt its culture or lose their distinctive identity as God's holy people. And that's the tension. He says in verse 6, look what he goes on. Take wives and have sons and give your daughters in marriage and that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Now, most of the commentators, if you read, they see that as an act of resistance because, and this is interesting to me, that faith is often lost in marriage and it's lost in between generations. That's the truth. The more I thought about that this week, the more that really, I think God is very clear in the scripture on those two things. He's very clear, it really matters who you marry. Because marriage is often where idolatry and false religion got into Israel when they married from the nations around them. The Bible is also very clear about the need for one generation to pass on the faith to the next because that's the other way faith is lost, from one generation failing in that aspect to the next generation. When our kids when our kids were little, this is how I thought about this this week, when our kids were little, Ashley so great, she would say, <laughs> we'd be on vacation and I'd be having a great time, you know, and she'd say, you, you do realize what vacation is for me, right? She said, I do all of the same things I do at home, but with none of the conveniences of actually being at home. <laughs> and it was like a light bulb, right? Like the, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And in some ways, that's what this text, and she would say, you know, when we would be making big decisions early in our marriage, she was like, you know what, it doesn't really matter to me because I'm going to be doing the same things no matter where we are. Like, what you're doing, okay, go, go do your thing, but like, I have a thing, and that's what I'm going to be doing no matter where we are or whatever the conditions, and that's, that's really what's, what, what's being said here is it doesn't matter where you live, there's work to do that really is indifferent to the place and the setting that you're doing that work in. I mean, what, it's so simple here, but this is what we have to see, the profundity of what the prophet is saying here, get married, raise kids, build a family. That might not seem like kingdom work, but that is the kingdom work. And no matter where you live, you know, it doesn't change if your address changes. That's the act of resistance. 
Perhaps two metaphors might help with this. The first would be the metaphor of a colony. In the Roman world, cities were colonies of Rome. So the residents were, were citizens of Rome. They were living on a frontier of the empire, and their purpose was to extend the influence of Rome to whatever part of the world they were living in, to bring the culture and the values of Rome to that place. And in Philippians, which is a Roman colony, which was a Roman colony, Paul reminded the Christians that their citizenship was in heaven, that they, as they lived in this Roman city in Asia, that they were to be, they were to remember that they were a colony of heaven, that they were to be a church that was there to make the invisible kingdom of heaven visible in the world, to see God's will done here the way it is already done there. They were to bring the culture and the values of heaven into concrete expression. And to do that, you have to be different. Stanley Hauerwas made the argument, it's our oddness, that it is our oddness that is essential to our faithfulness. Christians are weird. You with me? Keep the weird in Christianity, right? Keep Austin weird. Keep the church weird. Because it's our oddness that is essential to our faithfulness. But the second metaphor would be an ambassador. We're called to be ambassadors, and an ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign country to, to represent their home country. An ambassador needs to be bilingual. They need to be completely fluent in the language and the culture of the host countries and show the proper respect for the people there, but at the same time, they're there to represent the cultural and political interests of your home country. An ambassador has to be an insider and an outsider at the same time, in the world, but not of the world, intentionally living, working, and playing, respectfully resisting. So. It's confusing. It requires a lot of wisdom because he says, put down roots, invest long-term, be a good citizen, but don't make the world your ultimate home. Your citizenship is in heaven. Lots of wisdom because it's applied to so many different things, to where you live, to what kinds of school you choose for your kids. I mean, there's a, there's a hundred different ways you have to apply this, and so we need incredible wisdom. But secondly, apart from the wisdom, there's also... A need for direction, for a strategy. And so we see first the context here, but then we'll be much quicker from here, but then also the command. And here's where I want you to focus in verse 7 with me, where it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, the command here really is to sacrificially love the city. That's the command. That's the city-loving strategy. And there's an important word in verse 7 it's the word that's translated welfare, and you'll see it come up over and over again. It actually is a Hebrew word that is shalom, and shalom refers to the full thriving and flourishing in every aspect of life. Shalom means things are the way they ought to be. Sin is the vandalism of God's shalom. It is defacing the beauty, goodness, and truth of God in God's world. It is corruption, according to First, Second Peter. It's disease. So we live in a diseased world, and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, translates this word shalom in the Old Testament by the Greek word hygiene. Isn't that interesting? Hygiene, health, that reverses the spread of sin, having a healthy way of life that causes the spread of sin to cease. And so the shalom, then, of the city refers to its spiritual condition, but also to the economic and civic and cultural dynamics, too, the overall quality of life for the people who live in the city, their emotional and psychological well-being, as well as their physical 
and they're spiritual in all of it. And so Shalom describes a city with healthy, vibrant churches and nonprofits, which is why Jonathan prayed for all of those people, and effective government, which is why he also prayed for our leaders and good schools and the arts, and to seek the welfare or the shalom of the city means to aim at preaching the gospel and planting churches, but also prioritizing issues like cost of living and home prices and affordable housing inventory and parks and recreational spaces and community events and good restaurants. Tim Keller said the goal is city growth, not church growth. In Nehemiah 4, I keep coming back to Nehemiah. They face such constant opposition that it says that it, they were building the wall. If you're not familiar with the story, they're, they're there and they're trying to build the wall to protect Jerusalem against the enemies. And it says that they were under such constant opposition that they held a sword in one hand so they could fight. And they had a trowel in the other, which is where you did the concrete to build the wall. So they're working and they're fighting at the same time. Charles Spurgeon published a magazine during his ministry in London called The Sword and the Trowel that picked up on that imagery because he wanted to help his people be able to defend the gospel and also live faithful, helpful, obedient lives for the good of the city. And we should be bold defenders of the truth as we work to build up the dilapidated cultural institutions in this place that we live. The physical walls of Jerusalem were important to the spiritual health of the people. It remains true today. So you go after the shalom of the city in two ways. If you look there with me, let's, let's highlight something in verse 7 here. Through action and also through prayer. So it says, seek the welfare of the city, verse 7. That's a call to action. It means set a goal, put a plan together, organize the effort, evaluate your progress. And then it goes on to say, and pray to the Lord. And so we're told two things here, that we work and we pray. We work because prayer without action is hollow spirituality. Prayer should never outpace love. In his book, A Praying Church, Paul Miller links loveless prayer to the third commandment. It's really brilliant, actually, that he does this. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. He says that command is a warning against shallow or manipulative religious words or rituals that have no follow-through. And so John wrote, let us not love in word and deed, Excuse me, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And James says, if you see a need and you say to somebody, brother, I'm praying for you, but you don't actually get around to doing anything to meet the need, it's dead faith. But we also pray because work without prayer is a prideful boast. God is the hope for the city, not us. Only his power and grace can repair the ruin of our lives. And unless the Lord builds, those who build labor in vain. And so go back and read Nehemiah again and don't miss his prayers. In all of his building, he was, first of all, a man of prayer. He did more through his prayers than he did through his plans. And that is always true. Christianity's gospel, Jesus does all the work. Our work is to believe. He builds, we pray. He saves, we pray. He changes hearts. There you go. Thank you, Sebastian. We pray. He advances the kingdom. We pray. Action and prayer. Prayer and action. Both are sacrificial love. And Tim Keller noted how pray for Babylon, which is what he's saying to these people here, would have come off 
not in the best light because they knew they were supposed to pray for Jerusalem. Psalm 122 told them that. But Babylon, I mean, think about what, what's being asked of them here. This people who had conquered their nation and killed millions of their people and destroyed their capital city in the temple of Yahweh. Here comes the prophet Jeremiah and says, hey, I want you to pray for them and seek their good. And Dr. Keller said that it's the closest thing that you have in the Old Testament to the New Testament command to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. It is a command to love to your own hurt, to pour out yourself, to make the city great, not just for your friends, but even for the people who would hurt you if they could. And John Piper in a chapel service at RTS in 1997, in a sermon he preached, had a phrase that changed my life, and he said, the call of discipleship to Jesus is to move away from comfort toward need. To disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. That's how you do shalom. Sin came, and it still spreads through the world through a not-you-me-first attitude that ruins everything, and it's the root of every bad. And so shalom comes in every small act of not-me-you-first love. But, of course, we have to ask the question, where does that love originate? And that is the last thing as we finish this morning. that We see, thirdly, God's commitment to these exiles in verses 10 through 11, which is really where they find the energy and the strength to do what he's calling them to do here, the power for you to love sacrificially comes from God's sacrificial love for you. We say this all the time, right? We, we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. God is committed to your shalom, and that's what can make you and motivate you to seek the shalom of the city. And so notice how he comforts the exiles. He says, I know I'm asking you to do hard things here. So he says to them, beginning in verse 10, when 70 years are completed, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this land. And look at the verse 11. This is like 20% at our school, uh, the graduating seniors all have a, like a verse for their graduation. About 20% of the kids pick this verse, right? But it's appropriate. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. Guess what word that is? Shalom. Not for evil to give you hope in a future. God said, and I hope you can hear this this morning, he said, I've not forgotten you. I've not abandoned you. I know it's been hard, but there's a future and a hope for you because I have a plan and everything is going to plan. Do you know that, that everything is always going to plan? He says 70 years, even this, because in 70 years, 70 years, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you home. And John Piper, John Piper wrote, he said, the future look of faith is the primary empowerment for obedience. And he wrote a whole book about it called Future Grace. And his argument was this, that it is your confidence in God's future grace to you that gives you the strength that you need to live obediently now. So Jeremiah encourages these exiles, don't think about your present circumstances, think about your future. See what he says? Think about your future because with God, all your bad things are being turned to good and all your good things can never be taken away from you and all your best things are yet to come. You have a future, a future that you're not responsible for. And you can live with hope in that future, which will allow you to live today, not merely looking out for yourself, but living and loving sacrificially and with radical generosity, the way that God is living towards you. Now think about Think about all that I've said about how we're to love the city and love to your own hurt and sacrifice yourself for others and lay down your life even for your enemies. Who does that sound like? Isn't that exactly the way that Jesus Christ has loved you? I mean, we're reading about the fulfillment of Je Jeremiah's prophecy in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
how Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586, but then in 539, Babylon fell to the Persian Empire, and Cyrus sent the first wave of the Jews back to the land, and then a second wave with Ezra about 80 years later, and then a third wave with Nehemiah. And it happened much like Jeremiah said, but not everything that Jeremiah prophesied happened. The Jews came back, yes, but it happened in stages. It was incomplete. All of the promises were not fulfilled, and that was because another 400 years or so later, God actually did visit his people in person. He was born in the womb of a virgin, becoming human flesh and blood to bring God's shalom to the world. I mean, isn't that what the angels sang at his coming? Do you remember the passage in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. If you grew up in the church, you probably know. And on earth, what? Peace, shalom. And so think about these four doctrines as we just finish now. Think about the incarnation. The incarnation. God did not keep his distance. He moved toward us, toward our need. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus didn't sit in judgment and condemnation of people. He was a friend of sinners. He said, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. Isn't that wonderful? Think about the cross. Jesus loved with a not me, you first love, dying that you might live. And the only way that you could have shalom was for him to die. And he died bearing the curse of your sins. Curse for him so that you could have the peace and the shalom of God. Think about the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Jeremiah's promised future is an absolute certainty because it is already here. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the heavenly city is being built. And the work has begun, and it will be completed. And God is the builder, not you. Isn't that great news? But then think about the second coming. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he says there in that same passage, don't let your heart be troubled. Is your heart troubled? Don't let your heart be troubled. He said, believe. Here's what Jesus would say to you this morning. I'm taking care of everything. The only work that is left for you to do is to trust me. <laughs> That's all you gotta do. That's all you gotta do. We get off mission when we stop trusting him and think, oh, there's, I gotta, I gotta do, you know, and we become frantic and frenzied in all the things that we think we have to do. He says, no, no, I'm taking care of everything. The future is in my hands. The only thing left for you to do is to trust in me. And so what's the takeaway for us this morning? Well, one of C.S. Lewis Lewis's most famous quotes is, where he said that those who have done the most in the present world were precisely those who thought the most about the next. In Hebrews 13, it says this, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, if you would think, you might think that that would mean don't get involved, just bide your time, hang in there until God does his thing, but actually it's the opposite. He says, here we have no lasting city, 
but we seek the city that is to come. And then it says, it's because there is a city that is coming that we can and should actually give ourselves away for the good of others, just as Jesus has done for us. So seek the city that is to come because here there is no lasting city. There is no lasting peace. There is no lasting joy. There is, there is very little that life will not take away from you. But the good news of Christianity is that there is another city whose builder is God built upon the foundation of the work of Christ, the cornerstone. And if you seek that city, and if you make your heart's desire that city, if you seek it with all of your heart, then in the process of seeking that city, God will use you to make the city you live in great. Just as the hymn writer said, we've no abiding city here. We seek a city out of sight. Zion is its name. The Lord is there. It shines with everlasting light. Would you pray with me? So, Father, you have taught us to pray like this. Your kingdom come and your will be done. And so that is exactly how we pray. Would you take us, your people, as ragtag and worn out and full of worry and regret and fear and all of those things as we are? And would you, by the power of your spirit this morning, so fill us with the confidence and hope of the gospel in the great love that Jesus has shown to us and in the future that he's promised to us and the ultimate hope of the city that is to come, would you shake us out of all of those negative emotions that we might confidently, confidently, as the Hebrews writer says, say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, and then go with you outside the city, suffering the reproach, bearing the reproach that you endured for the sake of of love, just as you have done to us, all so that you might be glorified in us, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Yeah, I think that's right. Here is uh, the gospel hope. Tomorrow will be better than you can possibly imagine. There you go. Now, when I mean tomorrow, I don't mean like the 21st of August necessarily. It might be a million years from now, but it's going to be better than you can imagine. And that beautiful, wonderful thing that God is doing is already pushing back from that future, that inevitable future, into our lives in the moment, into the present. And it's in light of that great hope that we can go, as he sends us now, uh, to give our lives for the sake of the shalom of the city, because that is what he's called us to. It's the very heartbeat of God toward us and then through us toward the people who live in this place who so desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus. So let the gospel ring out from your lips. May it shine out from your countenance because of the countenance of God turned towards you. Receive this word of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace today.